Thanks for tuning in. This edition of Outcasting will begin in a few moments. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, formerly WDFH, Westchester Public Radio. Non-commercial, non-profit, and volunteer-powered. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on Support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. And now, Outcasting. A woman named Edie Windsor married her her fiance of almost of more than 40 years and they got married in Canada actually because at that time New York would not issue them a marriage license. Edie's spouse Thea had a degenerative disease and was in a wheelchair had to be flown in a wheelchair to uh, Canada in order to get married because New York at that time discriminated. The federal government however did not respect their marriage because of the so-called Defense of Marriage Act and even though they were legally married they were discriminated against when it came to federal protections and responsibilities. When Thea died Edie was denied a spousal exemption from the estate tax, and she was socked with a $363,000 tax bill that she would not have had to pay if Thea had been Theo. Edie sued. The Supreme Court ultimately opted to take Edie Windsor's case, and it was that case that brought down the so-called Defensive Marriage Act's discrimination against legally married couples. This is Outcasting, public broadcasting's youth-run radio show dealing with LGBTQ struggles, triumphs, lifestyles, and supreme strikedowns, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Westchester Public Radio in New York. This episode features the first half of a two-part interview with Evan Wolfson, the founder and president of Freedom to Marry, the campaign to win marriage nationwide. In this interview, Outcaster Travis talks with Evan about the state of marriage equality in the United States following the Supreme Court's rulings in June 2013 in United States v. Windsor, the case in which the court declared Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act unconstitutional, and Hollingsworth v. Perry, which cleared the way for marriage equality to be reinstated in California. During the 1990s, Evans served as co-counsel in the historic Hawaii marriage case that launched the ongoing global movement for the freedom to marry. Evan is the author of the book, Why Marriage Matters, America, Equality, and Gay People's Right to Marry, published by Simon & Schuster in 2004. In 2000, the National Law Journal named Evan one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America, citing his national leadership on marriage and his appearance before the U.S. Supreme Court in Boy Scouts of America v. James Dale. Newsweek and the Daily Beast dubbed Evan the godfather of gay marriage, and Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. In 2012, Evan received the Barnard Medal of Distinction alongside President Barack Obama. Thanks for joining us, Evan. You're welcome. How has the Supreme Court's recent cases changed the landscape for marriage equality in the U.S.? The big wins we had in the Supreme Court really added enormous momentum to our drive to end marriage discrimination nationwide. The Supreme Court did two big things. First, it changed the federal government from being the number one discriminator against gay people to putting its moral and indeed legal weight on the side of our families, the Constitution, and the freedom to marry. By striking down a core part of the so-called Defense of Marriage Act, the Supreme Court ensured that even though states will continue to discriminate for a period of time, and that's the rest of the work we have to do, 
the federal government will stop discriminating against gay couples who are legally married, which will bring tangible, important protections to families, to married couples all across the country, even in discriminating states. And the Supreme Court also restored the freedom to marry in California. That, of course, meant an enormously joyous, important opportunity for many tens of thousands of people all across the state of California. But it also restored California as a freedom to marry state, making it another engine helping pull the country along. We now have about a third of the American people living in a state where gay people have the freedom to marry. That's over 100 million people up from zero a decade ago. Clearly tremendous momentum, and yet our work is not done because that means there are 200 million people still living in a state that denies couples the freedom to marry, and we're going to continue until we get the job done. Are there issues in the LGBT community more immediately important than marriage? Like, as marriage rights are won, are there beneficial effects on efforts to address other issues like trans discrimination, HIV, AIDS, etc.? Yeah, I've never understood the logic of saying we have to pick one part of our life over another as if you have to choose between which is more important, your job or your love, uh, safety or security. We want it all, and our work is not done until we all have it all everywhere. That said, there is no one single thing we could win that would bring more protections, more respect, more inclusion to more people than the freedom to marry. And the proof of that is exactly what we've seen in our movement's history. We've won more gender identity protections, more non-discrimination laws, more GSAs and safe schools, more support for gay seniors during the period of our movement in which we've been fighting for the freedom to marry than we did in the many, many years where activists tried to avoid engaging in the fight for the freedom to marry. And the reason for that is marriage is not only important as a bundle of legal protections and personal meanings, important as that is, but marriage is also a vocabulary in which people come to understand who we are and helps transform their hostility or ignorance or lack of understanding or discomfort into support. And by claiming the vocabulary of marriage, we help move everything we care about along. Now, no one thing is everything, and we don't have to pick and choose. It's not a zero-sum game. We want to win it all, but marriage is a mighty engine that is pulling our movement forward. Explain why you use the term freedom to marry rather than gay marriage or same-sex marriage or same-gender marriage. We're not asking for something separate or other or lesser that's gay marriage or same-sex marriage or marriage over there any more than we want gay employment or gay safety. We want to participate fully and equally in the things that belong to all of us as Americans, as human beings. We don't want something other on the side called gay marriage. We want marriage. And what we're winning is marriage. When New York State, or for that matter, California, or Iowa, or Spain, or South Africa, or all the other places where we've won the freedom to marry issue marriage licenses, they don't issue gay marriage licenses. They issue marriage licenses. It's very important that we talk about it in the terms of the common, the connection, because we want non-gay people to understand that we're not just fighting to be left alone and sort of contained in our own separate bubble. We are fighting for our absolute freedom and right and opportunity to participate fully and equally in society, in families, in communities, and under the law. Laws like DOMA, 
and Prop 8 that are trying to protect marriage. What are they protecting marriage from exactly? Well, that's exactly right. That's why these are Orwellian propaganda terms that the right wing slapped onto the discriminatory laws. Marriage doesn't need defending from couples seeking to marry. There's enough marriage to go around. When gay people marry, we don't use up all the marriage licenses. There's plenty of marriage to share. And what we are also contesting is the right wing's claim that somehow we're trying to, quote, redefine marriage. Marriage is not defined by who is denied it. When gay people share in marriage, it doesn't change other people's marriage. It doesn't take anything away from anyone else. It means more people can participate. Just like when we finally overturned the Supreme Court ruling saying that women could not be lawyers, we didn't have to invent a new word for lawyer. It just meant that both women and men could be lawyers. Some states provide all or some of the rights of marriage to same-sex couples through domestic partnerships or civil unions. Why is the word marriage so important? Well, one of the main protections that comes with marriage is indeed the word marriage. When you say you're married, everyone knows who you are in relationship to the primary person you're building a life with. You don't have to hire a lawyer. You don't have to pull out a dictionary. You don't have to produce 15 different documents. You don't have to go before a judge. You're married. Everyone understands you've entered into a commitment that is both personal and legal. And to be denied that language, to be denied that clarity, that security, that immediately understood who you are in relationship to the person you're building a life with, is to be denied something very, very important that is both an insult to your dignity and your relationship and can also mean real legal consequences because it's that clarity and security that you most need in the times of crisis. If you're running into a hospital emergency room, if you're filing an application for a loan or for a support, if you're submitting your tax returns, to be able to say and be understood that this is who you're connected to makes a huge difference. A lot of the opposition uh, to marriage equality or the freedom to marry say that marriage is religious. How do you address that opposition? I think for some people, the claim that their opposition is religious functions more as an excuse than as the actual reason. Uh, in other words, I think that people sometimes use religion as an excuse to shut down their own thinking, their own wrestling with who gay people are and why marriage matters and deeper values that are certainly spiritual and sometimes religious for people, such as treating others as you'd want to be treated, rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, respecting somebody else's love and commitment and aspirations to make the most of our precious time on this planet. I think people sometimes invoke religion to shut down their actual thinking and engagement with something that may be new or uncomfortable for them. That said, there are, of course, many religions that do support the freedom to marry and do support it not only as a civil or legal matter, but as a matter of religious faith and doctrine. Now, at the end of the day, it's up to each church, each temple, each synagogue, each mosque to decide for itself whom they will marry. The government has no business telling religion what religion doct religious doctrine should be or who should they, who they should marry. But no religion should be dictating to the government who gets a civil or legal marriage license. And that's what we're fighting for. 
besides religion, what are the strongest arguments against freedom to marry if they even exist? Yeah, well, I, I don't really think religion is a good argument against the freedom to marry, but obviously each person's entitled to decide for him or herself where they're going to go with that. Many religious people, indeed a majority of religious people in this country, now support the freedom to marry. Uh, 63% of Catholics support the freedom to marry. A, a majority of most, most people of most faiths now support the freedom to marry. There are only a handful of faiths at this point where a majority oppose the freedom to marry, and even that opposition is declining. That said, the, the reason religion does not constitute a good argument against civil marriage and the freedom to marry under the law is that most of us understand that we don't use the government as a weapon to enforce our religious views on others when it comes to the law. Religions should be able to decide for themselves who they will marry, and the public sphere, the government, the legal and civil marriage ought to be available to all in the same way that government can't tell the Catholic Church that they must now perform marriages of divorced Catholics. That's up to them. But the cardinal should not be able to phone over to the clerk's office and say, don't give that divorced Catholic a, a marriage license. We all understand that difference, and that's why religion itself does not constitute a good argument against legal or, or civil marriage. When you take away that, that sort of soundbite that some people use to shut down the discussion, my religion says such and such, something they're perfectly willing to disregard when it comes to all kinds of other things, uh, it, it turns out there actually isn't a good argument against uh, allowing loving and committed couples the freedom to marry. And that's why court after court, legislature after legislature, and now a majority of the public have come to support the freedom to marry. Because in the, in the light of a courtroom, in the light of a rational, sober, serious discussion, it turns out there is no good argument, no real logic, and no good evidence supporting this discrimination. We saw a lot of these arguments sort of dissipate and get knocked down in the trial rulings. Yeah, well, for example, in, in the trial in California against Proposition 8, and for that matter, when we did the world's first ever trial on the freedom to marry 14 years before the Prop 8 case in Hawaii, the case that launched this ongoing global movement, we heard many of the same arguments and the same claims, and we brought them into court. We subjected them to cross-examination. We required the opposition not just to announce its views and not just, just state its prejudices and not just run TV ads, but actually come into court with witnesses under oath and evidence. And it turned out in Hawaii in 1996, as in California during the 2010 trial, there is no good argument that stands in the light of a courtroom. There are no witnesses who are able to offer serious, substantial arguments that stand up under oath. And when we went before the Supreme Court earlier this year with a mountain of briefs and a mountain of argument, as well as that trial record, there was no argument that stood in the light of the courtroom in the Supreme Court as well. And that's part of why the Supreme Court reached its ruling, striking down the so-called Defensive Marriage Act and leaving standing the lower court ruling based on the trial that said there is no good reason for denying gay people the freedom to marry. If it was so obvious, why did it take so long? It takes long because courts alone are not always willing to uphold the Constitution's command. And part of the reason there is a freedom to marry 
and the whole campaign that we're leading to get the job done is that we know from American history that the Constitution's commands of equal protection and liberty for all and personal freedom aren't self-actualizing. You have to go in and fight for them. You have to fight for them in the court of public opinion, even as you're fighting for them in the courts of law. Freedom to marry strategy, the way we've, we set out to win the freedom to marry back when no one was talking about it was number one, to get people to talk about it, to get people to, to have the conversations, to push past the religious shutting down the, the discussion, the discomfort that led people to rubber stamp the exclusion. We encouraged the conversation because it's by talking about it that we could get people and then decision makers, judges, lawmakers, governors, presidents, ultimately justices, to begin to embrace the truths, not just the fears, the stereotypes, the prejudices, the assumptions that led people initially to rubber stamp the denial and perpetuate the discrimination. As we've prompted this conversation, we've created a climate that has encouraged decision makers, political as well as judicial, to begin dismantling this discrimination and live up to the Constitution's command. The history of American civil rights is that while the Constitution is clear, making it real requires each of us to engage. And so Freedom to Marry strategy, which by the way is not a secret strategy, it's on our website, calls on people calls on all of us to do our part to create a critical mass of states and a critical mass of public opinion by making that case, personal conversations, engagement, and pushing, that will ultimately create the climate that will enable the Supreme Court to then do its job and fulfill the Constitution's command. We, we saw some of that happen in June, but of course, the Supreme Court didn't address the ultimate question that we're seeking to, to resolve, which is... How do we end this denial of the freedom to marry to gay couples? And that's why the strategy going forward is the very same strategy that brought us to this point. It's to now go out and get more states, continue growing public opinion, engaging in conversations that will create the climate that gets the Supreme Court to do the job and finish the job when we go back before the Supreme Court with the next marriage case. But to your question, Let's remember, the Supreme Court got segregation wrong before it got it right. The Supreme Court got the question of whether women should be allowed to be lawyers simply or, or have the right to vote wrong before it got it right. The Supreme Court got interracial marriage wrong before it got it right. Now, why did it get it wrong before it got it right? The law is the law. The Constitution is the Constitution, and you, would, you and I would agree that the truth is the truth. But these things don't come by magic. They don't come by waving a magic wand. And if it were just as simple as hiring a lawyer and pulling out the document and saying, look, we all would have been done decades ago. The fact of the matter is, in order to fulfill that truth, in order to fulfill that Constitution command, you have to do the kind of work that Freedom to Marry has been leading, and that still is not done. We need to go out there now working together with this added momentum from our Supreme Court wins and go out and get the freedom to marry in more states, engage more hearts and minds, create more of a climate, and then we will go back before the next wave of justices and get the job done. This is Outcasting, public broadcasting's youth-run radio show dealing with LGBTQ struggles, triumphs, lifestyles, and supreme strikedowns, where you don't have to be queer to be here. 
We are listening to a discussion with Evan Wolfson, the founder and president of Freedom to Marry, the campaign to win marriage nationwide, about the state of marriage equality in the United States following the Supreme Court's rulings in June 2013 in United States versus Windsor, the case in which the court declared Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act unconstitutional, and Hollingsworth versus Perry, which cleared the way for marriage equality to be reinstated in California. Let's talk about the two cases that came out of the Supreme Court in June 2013. Tell us a bit about each one and how it got to the Supreme Court. Sure. So the, the two cases that the Supreme Court addressed in June uh, involved challenges to both levels of marriage discrimination. Gay people are discriminated when it comes to marriage at two levels of government. The first is at the state level. Remember, it's states that issue marriage licenses. We don't get it, we don't get married according to the laws of Congress, according to the federal law. States issue marriage licenses. And the first level of discrimination that most gay people still endure today, even with everything we've won so far, is that most gay people in most states are still denied marriage licenses when they apply because we've now won the freedom to marry in 13 states plus the District of Columbia which of course means there are 37 states that continue to refuse to issue marriage licenses to gay couples. One of those states, until recently, was California. California had the freedom to marry, but it was stripped away with Proposition 8. And the question before the Supreme Court was, did that denial of the freedom to marry, that stripping away of the freedom to marry by California, violate the Constitution? Ultimately, the Supreme Court concluded that the case was not properly before it. There was an issue of standing. In other words, an, an issue that the anti-gay forces who had brought the appeal from the lower court ruling did not have the right to appeal. And therefore, the Supreme Court threw the case out, leaving standing the lower decision, the lower court, the trial court decision that had found Proposition 8 unconstitutional. So the net effect was restoring the freedom to marry that California had had and then had stripped away. The question that the Supreme Court did not resolve, that ultimately we will bring back to the Supreme Court once we've won enough states and enough public support, is can any state deny loving and committed couples the freedom to marry just because they're gay? The other level of discrimination that gay couples endured is federal marriage discrimination. The Congress in 1996 passed a law, the so-called Defense of Marriage Act, which said that even if gay couples are legally married, the federal government will not treat them as married. The federal government will regard them as no more than roommates and therefore would not accord to them, unlike any other married couple, the more than 1,138 federal protections and responsibilities triggered by marriage. So the so-called Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, created a gay exception to the ordinary way in which the federal government normally respects the lawful marriages celebrated in states. The Supreme Court, in an epically important ruling in June, said that that gay exception was unconstitutional, that the federal government may not discriminate against marriages lawfully celebrated in the states or in the now 18 countries on five continents where we've won the freedom to marry, up from zero virtually a decade ago. So while that still leaves states discriminating, and that's the next round of our push, that's our next chapter, is to end state discrimination, the federal government now will no longer discriminate against lawfully married couples. Focusing on DOMA, what is the 
factual background behind yeah, DOMA? So the facts of the challenge to the so-called Defense of Marriage Act were actually very compelling. Uh, a woman named Edie Windsor married her her fiance of almost of more than 40 years and they got married in Canada actually because at that time New York would not issue them a marriage license they got married after as I said 40 some years together as a couple they were caring for one another living actually at that point Edie's spouse Thea had a degenerative disease and was in a wheelchair had to be flown in a wheelchair to uh, Canada in order to get married because New York at that time discriminated discrimination we've since fixed here in New York. And they lived together for another couple years as a married couple. The federal government, however, did not respect their marriage because of the so-called Defense of Marriage Act. And even though they were legally married, they were discriminated against when it came to federal protections and responsibilities. When Thea died, that meant that Edie was denied uh, a, a spousal exemption from the estate tax, and she was socked with a $363,000 tax bill that she would not have had to pay if Thea had been Theo. Edie sued, and that case made its way through the courts alongside several other cases involving couples who had similar kinds of discrimination. The Supreme Court ultimately opted to take Edie Windsor's case, and it was that case that brought down the so-called Defense of Marriage Act's discrimination against legally married couples. Did the court strike down DOMA in its entirety? No. DOMA actually has two principal parts. One part was this gay exception uh, that denied married couples federal protections and responsibilities. That part the court struck down. The other part of the so-called Defense of Marriage Act purports to license states to discriminate or not respect the lawful marriages that gay couples celebrate. So it creates a gay exception to the normal ways in which states between themselves treat marriages. That discrimination remains on the books and is part of what we're challenging in our broader campaign to end marriage discrimination nationwide. And it's part of why Congress needs to pass the Respect for Marriage Act, the law that the bill that we helped write that would repeal the so-called Defensive Marriage Act in its entirety, get all of that discriminatory language off the books, and also codify the general principle that once you're married, you're married. That even if a state is going to discriminate, the federal government will not, no matter where you live in the country. And we're pushing hard, and all of us need to contact our members of Congress to make sure they're sponsors of the Respect for Marriage Act and prepared to vote for it when we're able to move it through the Senate and the House. The president has promised to sign it when it hits his desk. So continuing with the talk on DOMA, the court seemed to spend a lot of time in its opinion explaining how DOMA intruded into the right of New York State to include same-sex couples residing in New York. Is this the strongest legal argument to be made in favor of, mar of marriage equality and the freedom to marry? No, the strongest legal argument is that the Constitution requires the government to give everybody equal protection under the laws. And there is no good reason for the federal government, as was decided in this case, or as we expect will be decided when we know next go before the Supreme Court, the states, there is no good reason for the government to be creating a gay exception that treats some group of Americans different from others. That's the strongest argument. Bedrock equal protection. There is no good reason for treating one group of people differently than the other when it comes to the freedom to marry or respect for their lawful marriages. 
The other very powerful argument is the freedom to marry itself. The Supreme Court has acknowledged at least 14 times that the Constitution guarantees to every American the freedom to marry. There is no good reason for the government's arbitrarily abridging the freedom to marry by restricting marriage to only people of different sex, any more than there was a good reason for the government restricting the freedom to marry when it came to people's choice of a partner in marriage of a different race. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, public broadcasting's youth-run radio show dealing with LGBTQ struggles, triumphs, lifestyles, and supreme strikedowns, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Part two of this interview will be heard soon. This show has been produced by the Outcasting team at Westchester Public Radio in New York, including youth participants Lester, Chris, Josh, George, Maddie, Sydney, Travis, and me, Nicole. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is a production of Westchester Public Radio in New York. For more information on this program, including a link to Freedom to Mary's website, visit us at wdfh.org and click on Outcasting. I'm Nicole. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again next time. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to media for the public good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.